Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with California jazz journeyman pianist Bob Ringwald. There have been rumors of a virgin birth, being abandoned by wolves and being raised by parents living in a log cabin, chopping down a cherry tree, throwing a half dollar across the Potomac River, and walking 10 miles to and from school uphill both ways in the snow. But after our interview with Neon Jazz, I found out that all of these claims are grossly exaggerated. Instead, he is a man that is dedicated dedicated his life to playing jazz since the age of eight on the keys. He spent 16 years as a jazz radio host in Los Angeles. It was one of their top rated shows ever, and he is a pro in the ham radio world. He discussed what has been going on lately in his world, performing occasionally with his daughter, actress, author, and jazz singer Molly Ringwald, and he revealed much, much more. So please dig this interview, my friends. I'm going to go ahead and start off here and get kind of an idea, an overview of what the activity has been like for you lately. What's kind of on your schedule? Well, I'm pretty busy. Uh, I used to make my living playing music, which is, uh, in this day and age, is tough to do. Now I do it on the side for fun and profit. The thought of playing six nights a week in a smoky nightclub gives me cold chills now, where I used to enjoy it. Of course, we don't have, here in California, we don't have uh, any smoke in nightclubs anymore, but still... You know, been there, done that, had fun, so forth. Now I just play private parties and um, jazz festivals and um, conventions and so forth and uh, run a, another business on the side. I get along very well and uh, still get to play usually the kind of music I enjoy, which is early traditional jazz. I do play a lot of what you might call hockey-tonk, rinky-tink, uh, pseudo-ragtime stuff, a lot of the old tunes i i draw the line at rock and i don't play classical don't want to play rock and don't want to learn the cr lousy songs they put out now so my specialty is uh, the older tunes all the way up through the, the the american songbook the standards all the way back to early ragtime and uh, i get along quite well and i'm kind of a dying breed so uh, there's not a lot of uh, young piano players that very there's a few around but very few that know that genre of music, so so I do very well. So let me ask about you. You were born and raised in Citrus Heights, California, correct? Uh, I was born in what is now Citrus Heights. It was uh, a part of uh, Sacramento County back then. There was no Citrus Heights, but essentially it's Citrus Heights now and lived there until uh, 1979 and then moved to Los Angeles for 17 years. And moved back in about somewhere around 1995. How did you get interested in music? When did you start playing piano? When did that jazz bug hit you when you were growing up? Well, I can remember hearing um, some music when I was very, very little, possibly around 1945, 46, maybe, I suppose. I don't know. Well, I can remember hearing music from the time I can remember anything. But I remember this particular one time I heard a big band playing on a record, and I asked my mom what those instruments were and of course at that time i couldn't tell the difference i just heard heard them as a an ensemble playing and she told me they were clarinets and trumpets and trombones and so forth and later later years of course i realized what it all was but i heard that and then somewhere along the line i discovered a record my a 78 record my parents had of lou waters yerba buena jazz band out of san francisco and man, that hit me like a thunderbolt, and that was it. From then on, it was that sort of music that really captured me, and that's probably why 
I never really studied classical, even though I should have, because classical jazz players who study classical music get the technique you learn from, from classical and from playing scales, and I can apply that to their jazz music, and, and it makes them wonderful players, where I had too good of an ear for my own good, and I didn't want to practice scales and classical. I wanted to play what I wanted to play. So I'm almost entirely self-taught. When I was about eight years old or so, my second cousin was in the Air Force and moved out to the Sacramento area. He was a navigator aboard B-24s at the time, I think, and then they went on to bigger and bigger, newer planes. But his wife had been a, uh, or was a music teacher, and they rented a little piano, and they had a little apartment, and she thought that I had musical talent, so she started teaching me piano. And that's what got me started. And then from then on, they moved away. I just kind of learned on my own until I was about 17, and I took about six months' worth of lessons from a very fine uh, teacher player in Sacramento, Jerry Murphy. The rest is pretty much self-taught, but I was able to make my living and support a wife and three children on a musician's salary, and I made my living for 25 years. Unfortunately, during that time, I had to play a lot of music that, that I didn't like, but I was able to play the kind of music I do like also. But, you know, I played a lot of piano bar music, and I made a lot of money off of Stupid songs like uh, Tie Yellow Ribbon and oh, some of those things that are just awful songs, but that's what the people want to hear. So yeah. play it five nights a week, and or five, I'd play the song five times a night and make a lot of money at it, you know, the tips and so forth. So that's what kept uh, the wolves away from the door, you know. Now I can pretty much play what I, what I want. Yeah, that's beautiful. And mm-hmm. so when you were young, you know, when you were doing your first gigs when you were 12 and 13, were you nervous or have you always had kind of this? natural feel for being in front of an audience. Yeah, I was very nervous when I first started. Each time I do something new, uh, I was very nervous, but I knew in my mind that if I did it a few times that I would get unnervous and I'd get better at it. So I can remember the first time I sang in public, geez, I was really scared. I got used to it. First time I did any radio interviews, first time I did television, first time I recorded uh any uh, recording, I was, you know, scared to death. Now you just go in the studio and do what you do naturally, and there's no problem. But um, it's just something that you get used to. You were a founding member of the internationally acclaimed Sacramento Jazz Fest and Jubilee. What, is, what has that been like? What's been the history of that? Well, first of all, it started in about 1968 with the Sacramento Traditional Jazz Society, a gentleman trombone player from... Southern California moved to Sacramento, and they had a jazz club down there, maybe a couple. There was one in San Francisco, I think, where a bunch of musicians would get together and play the kind of music they liked on a Sunday afternoon, and the people who liked the music would come and listen. So uh, he he started the Sacramento Traditional Jazz Society. Very, very shortly after that, I I became a member. And about um, a couple of years later, we had a gentleman here in town named Bill Borcher. But he was a real, real go-getter type of of guy. He uh, worked for a college in town, was involved in press and publicity and so forth. He was going to uh, put together some sort of um, group uh, to go to some jazz festival somewhere. And Jill... Johnson in town, she's Jill Harper now, said, why don't we have a jazz festival here in Sacramento instead of taking a bunch of people to some other jazz festival? My thought was, 
Yeah, sure. Who's going to come to Sacramento for a jazz festival? So, but we appointed Bill Borcher to um, get, get some ideas up about it, come back the next month, and uh, report. And he did, and he had some great ideas, rather unique ideas for the time, as far as the way he ran the festival. They, most festivals before that time were the kind of festival where you would go to a theater and sit down and watch bands come through where his idea was to, as part of the festival, was not only have the main concert site, but have places where the bands would would play besides the concert site and play all day and all practically all night. So we had our first festival in about 1973, I think, and uh, a bunch of us musicians locally made a deal with the musicians union and uh, we'd go out and play jobs and donate the money to the festival to have seed money to to start it we did the first festival lost some money the first festival lost a little bit of money but we did it again the next festival didn't lose quite so much and after that we started making money and the festival grew and grew we started with the first festival maybe 12 or 15 bands from up and down the west coast one of the ideas that bill borcher had was Rather than try and get newspaper and uh, radio and TV publicity, which is very expensive, first thing he did was uh, involve all the other press people in town and made them part of the festival rather than go to them hat in hand and try to get free advertising from the newspapers and radio and TV. He, they became the, the press committee for the uh, festival. And so we had an inn right there. Um, and then um, he... We went to all the jazz clubs up and down the uh, West Coast. By that time, there were several, and even as far away as Denver, and brought the president and the president's wife in and wined and dined them for a weekend, told them about the festival we were going to put on, and um, took them around town, showed them all the places we had bands playing, put them in a big uh, truck-trailer situation with a keg of beer and pizza, and drive them to a nightclub and take them in, and the band would be playing, and they'd go out and get, climb back in the truck and go to another place and go in, and it was quite a party. We just part, wine and dined them, and then set, Sunday we told them how the festival was going to work. So they were all enthused, and we told them to have their their jazz club a sponsor a band. They would come to the festival. So that's the way we got, got it started was the uh, various uh, bands from each each jazz club up and down the West Coast, and like I say, Denver would brought a, a band, and of course, all their fans would come too. So the festival got started that way, and it grew and grew and grew, and pretty soon we had, I don't know, 140 bands, I think, maybe playing in possibly 25 locations over four days, from 10 o'clock in the morning to two o'clock at night, and then in those days we'd get together and jam until five or six in the morning, which at our age now, there's no way I'm going to stay up till five in the morning <laughs> playing music. But it was an incredible situation, and we became what we felt was a, probably, obviously, the biggest jazz festival in the United States, and maybe the biggest uh, in the world. Since then, it's uh, pared down a little bit, but we still have a one heck of a festival. And we also have added different kinds of music as the older folks who were familiar with traditional jazz or Dixieland jazz or classic jazz, whatever you might want to call it, as they pass away and the younger folks come along 
and they aren't as familiar. In order to keep uh, attendance up, we brought in what we would call uh, different kinds of Americana music. So we even have blues, some rock now, a lot of big band, various kinds of jazz styles, including what's really big now, of course, is the Django Reinhardt violin, guitar type situation. But we have all from very small combos to big bands, and we still have possibly 70 to 80 bands here over the Memorial Day weekend. It's quite a festival. It's unlike you ever saw the whole uh, city goes crazy, and um, and it's just one big giant party for four days and nights. That's cool. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. I think we're coming up with our 43rd year, possibly, and my band, the Fulton Street Jazz Band, is the only band who's played every single one of them. That's great. Yeah. Well, another part of your diversified approach to jazz is ham radio, and you were uh, you had a show out in L.A. Talk to me a little bit about the show on KTSN 88.5. What was that like for 16 years? Boy, you did your research, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did, yeah, I did a three-hour jazz show called Bob Ringwald's Bourbon Street Parade out of KCSN and uh, actually stationed at the college at Northridge in uh, the Los Angeles area. It was a very popular show on the station. I did three hours every Saturday. My show was probably the somewhere between the third and the first most popular show on the, on the station. Twice a year, we'd have to do fundraising, and depending on how much money we brought in, we'd pretty much would tell you who's the most popular show. Mine, along with a German music show and an old-time radio show, us three were the top shows on the station. And I did that for 16 and a half years, and it was a lot of fun. And to this day, 20 years later, I run into people still that not only remember my show and tell me about how much they enjoyed it, they have tapes they've made of it, and they're still listening to the tapes of my show. And then ham radio. Ham radio is a big, a big deal that I noticed in your bio as well. Talk to me a little bit about your history and what you're doing with that. It has really nothing to do with music. From the time that I was... I had a relative come out and visit us from Oklahoma when I was probably 13 years old, 12, something like that, and he brought a surplus radio with him. At that time, World War II was over, and there was a lot of surplus radio gear being sold. He plugged it in, threw a wire up in a, in a tree, and I heard hams talking to each other. And I said, wow, that's really something. And, and from then on, I knew I was going to be a ham operator someday. And at that time, you had to learn the International Morse Code was part of the test to become a ham, to, to get your license. Actually, the official name of that would be an amateur radio operator. So I learned the Morse Code and uh, learned this, the study of the electronics and the regulations and got my license when I was 17. I just turned 75, so I've had it for, uh, what, 58 years, I think, I've had my, my license. It's my call letters are K6YBV. Surprisingly enough, there's uh, quite a few famous people around who do have ham licenses. One day I was relaying for uh, my neighbor down the street was in the service, and he was on Formosa. And I was relaying. I had his wife on the telephone, and I was relaying uh, messages back and forth to him. His wife was still living down the street, and he was in Formosa. This big, booming voice broke in and said, can I help you relay? And I said, sure. And it turned out to be Barry Goldwater. Wow. Who had just run for president uh, a year or two before. Uh, his call letters were K6UGA, K7UGA. But Andy Devine was an operator. One time I heard him on the on the air and someone else uh 
came on and told him that something was wrong with his radio because his audio was not very good. He didn't know it was Andy Devine. It was Andy Devine's scratchy voice that he was listening to. <laughs> I heard a King Hussein from Jordan was was a ham. I heard him on one time. Curtis LeMay, General Curtis LeMay. Oh, there's uh, several actors who are ham operators. There's one who had the Larry Sanders show. Uh, lots of lots of famous people and lots of not so famous people are ham operators all over the world. It's a wonderful hobby. I've met just like music, just like the the jazz thing. You, you uh, were kind of a, a small tight knit community, and you meet people from all over the world. I've because of music, I've gone to Hungary and played music. Met people. I I moderate the Dixieland Jazz mailing list on the internet. And we've got 600 members from all over the world, and I've met them from England and from Australia and from New Zealand and from all over. I've actually met them in person at various times. Uh, they've been over here, or I've been over there, or met them somewhere. Same thing with ham radio. I've met people from all over the world. There was one gentleman who we used to talk as teenagers. We lost contact, and because of the Internet, uh, he found me about 50 years later, and we resumed our uh, our friendship. Been in the service, been a firefighter, been an under under drug enforcement officer retired now unfortunately just passed away but uh we renewed our friendship because of ham radio so i've met just like the music and the ham radio both i've met wonderful people from all over the world you know the one thing i noticed when i was really kind of looking into your music is it was hard for me to find any digital downloads i did actually find a vinyl copy of digging gold which was delightful to hear in vinyl but uh, why why is it not why can't I get your music on either Amazon or iTunes? You can go to C D Baby and get it. For the folks listening, uh they go to C D B A B Y dot com. C D Baby dot com. Yeah, three of my CDs up there, the ones that are still in print. Speaking of CDs and projects, do you get to perform with your daughter Molly? I know she's a jazz singer. She has a, a new CD out. She put out a couple years ago. My daughter Molly Ringwald is an actress, singer, and author. We don't get much chance to perform very often anymore. She's got her own band now. She did perform with me starting when she was three years old, and uh, sang jazz. She, oddly enough, when she was a little kid, listened to a lot of Billie Holiday and Bessie Smith, and she thought she was going to grow up and be a black blues singer. <laughs> which didn't quite work out. But she sort of put the singing on the back burner for a while while she was acting, doing a lot of acting. At that stage in her career, a lot of actors didn't cross over. Movie actors didn't do TV, and and they didn't sing, and singers didn't act much. But um, now they're they're all doing everything, and she's doing that herself. She's now working on her third book. She's, uh, like you say, recorded this uh, wonderful album for Concord Jazz, which is on Amazon. If she happens to be around where I'm playing, she comes in and will sing a couple tunes uh, with a band. Or uh, she actually wants to do an album with me, though. I don't. I hope we can do that soon. Cool. But she's she's been very very busy. But um, she has her own um, a band and is doing been doing concerts all over the world. If I happen to be at one of her concerts. As a surprise to the audience, she brings me up for the last tune after her encore. She'll, she'll bring me up and we do a song, just her and I together. The, the crowd really does like it. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Let me get to the roots of, of who motivated you as musicians. Who would you consider your jazz heroes? Well, that's kind of um, changed through the years a little bit, but I guess uh, Louis Armstrong would be my very favorite. I would say um, Louis Armstrong um, 
is probably, in my opinion, the greatest jazz musician that ever lived. There's been some since him, of course, as with sports, as with music, as it develops, people get better and better at the technique and so forth. Louis was a, a groundbreaking musician. Everybody who plays jazz is influenced by Louis at one point or the yeah. other. Everybody who plays music is influenced by Louis Armstrong in one way or the other. Of course, there's piano players. Me, mainly being a piano player, I'm influenced by Art Tatum, stride players such as Johnny Guarneri and Ralph Sutton, Dick Wellstead, Dick Hyman, who's a wonderful, wonderful musician, still playing. But overall, I think Louis Armstrong is my very, very favorite musician of all times. And let me ask you this. In your life, of all the things that you've done, what are you the proudest of? Oh, boy. I suppose I'm proudest of my uh, my daughter, uh, Molly Ringwald. She's been a uh, very, very nice, not only a, a good actress, a good writer, a good singer, good musician. She's also a wonderful person. She's been very successful, worked very hard at it. So I guess I'm, I could say that I'm pretty proud of her. Let me ask you this. It's a simple question, but it kind of packs a punch. Why do you love jazz? You know, I don't know why why I like jazz. Um, there's just something uh, in me. You know, why does somebody like corned beef? And why does somebody like carrots? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Why does somebody like vanilla and some people like chocolate? Who knows? I don't know. It's just something that's... Uh, it's somehow uh, in my uh, genes, I suppose. I don't know. Jazz is just in my blood. That's all I can say. Absolutely. I'm going to ask you one final question. And of, of all the years that you've dedicated to jazz, how would you like the world of jazz to remember what you've done, what you've contributed, what you've given, and between the radio and your performances and your recordings, how do you want to be remembered? Oh, I just think I'm a one small cog in the whole thing of jazz. I don't think that I'm going to go down in jazz history. Is any big big deal? You've got musicians like Louis Armstrong and Jack T. Garden and Betty Goodman, and so I'll be surprised if anybody remembers me at all. Years to come, they're going to pick up an LP or a CD if they still have them then, and say, "Wow, who was this?" Perfect, Bob. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been an honor. Sure. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Bob for his dedication to jazz, his refreshing wit, minced with comedy, and all that tasty jazz music. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.